I would like you to meet six women and hear their stories. These women have spent most of their lives working overseas and have now returned home. They are all in their 70s and they are all missionary sisters. It was not religion that got me interested in missionary sisters. It was personal. My aunt, Auntie Siobhan, was a nun. She has long since passed. I guess if she was alive, she'd be in her late 90s. She left Ireland in the early 50s and headed to Italy, where she spent most of her life. She was a small, feisty, carry woman, and I loved her dearly. I never really thought much about her as a nun. I just remember her as my aunt. She was warm and chatty and held my hand and was always interested in what I was doing. She taught me how to play poker and she fleeced me. It was only later when she died that I started to think about her and what it was like as a young woman leaving Ireland and going to Italy and how she got educated and how she got to travel the world and how she got to have adventures that women of her generation didn't really have. And I wished I had asked her more questions and found out a little bit more about the life that she had lived. And it was that that got me interested in missionary sisters. And I have had the privilege of meeting these six. Their stories have brought me to shacks in Peru, orphanages in India, and prisons in Sao Paulo. These women have challenged me completely. Not just my image of an old woman, but something else. I have struggled with this throughout telling the story, but it's been in my head when I have sat with these women. But what about the Catholic Church? What about the horror stories that we have heard and the truth that needed to come out, that struggled to come out? And what about all that? And we need to be brave and stand up to all of that ugly truth. But I think we also need to hear of the individuals who did good within the church. So I guess what I'm asking you is just listen to them as women. Listen to what they have done with their lives. Because that is what I did. And it challenged me completely. I'm Philomena Dowd. I'm a Loretto sister. I've worked in India since 1960. I joined Loretto Novitiate in 1957, after I did my leaving cert, I was 17. I took it for granted I would be sent to Africa. Then obedience, I was sent to India. And I remember when the Superior General said, I thought that's what you wanted, and I said, I don't know where it is on the map. But somehow I knew that was all right, and I had no regrets. She said you didn't know where it was on the map. Like, how no, far had you travelled before that? I'd never been out of Ireland. Then I hopped on the mail boat and went off. <laughs> yes. And I think in those days you think you're going to convert everyone to Christ. And as the time goes on, you realise that your life has to be a Christocentric life that people can see and that helps them rather than try to change them in any way. And so I went out buoyed up and enthusiastic and excited about what I could do in India. And it was only 
um, when we reached Port Said and the first letters came from home that it hit me where I was and where everyone else was <laughs> and uh, I had a good cry up until that I was grand Can you remember what it was like when you first landed on Indonesia? I remember there were two of us from Cavan together and we knew we were going to dock on a Sunday morning so the two of us got up long before dawn and went up to the deck waited with excitement then as we got nearer and nearer and then when I got into Bombay and saw the crowds and the bustle I was quite scared I remember um, saying this looks like an All-Ireland final because there were crowds and crowds the only time I had seen crowds (laughs) after an All-Ireland final (laughs) yeah and I was in Asensol Ranchi, different Loretta schools. You spent... 55 years in India, longer than you've been on earth. (laughs) (laughs) So I worked quite a number of years um, in Loretto in Tali, which is in Calcutta. And it is an orphanage and a boarding school for underprivileged children. And I started off by looking after the little ones. And I am in touch now with Facebook with a child who I remember she was in about six, seven, and she was desperately lonely. She came from a very poor background. Do you remember her sitting on the bed and sitting with her one night? And she said, they said, if I came into Loretto and Tally, my health would pick up. And look at me, there's not a pick on me and I'm here a whole week. So that was the reason many of them were sent. The dormitory that I was in had more than 100 beds. And there were just one bed after another and there was nothing else. So there was nothing personal. All they had was in the dressing room where their basins were, they had a little tin box where they kept their treasures. Did they have toys? Very little. Four-year-olds without toys. Yeah, today they have because people have been good to us. Is that because it felt that there was no need for it or there was no money for it? We had no money. We were very badly off in my first years in Antali and they were never hungry, but their food was, in the morning they got um, porridge and then they got two slices of dried bread and a cup of tea. And that killed me in the beginning. I remember writing to my mother to say, I didn't know you could eat bread without butter. And my mother wrote back and said, what can I do? So I said, you can do nothing. There are 500 of them. My idea was that if they were educated, they would have a better life than their families. And that's one of my joys when I was leaving, that there were so many who were on their feet and doing well. And when you say doing well, what does that mean? Teachers, nurses, uh, Early on, a lot of them worked in offices because uh, they would have had an English background of education. Somebody sent me a message the other day. Um, Sister, what 
how does one say thank you to somebody who brought them from crayons to perfume? And all I can say is thank you. That's the sort of joy I have. And that girl, we sent her, because she was miserably poor, we sent her to our teacher training. And she was did her training and she became a teacher. Now she's sending her children to college, which is just what you want, because that means these women are standing on their feet and able to look after their families and hold their heads high. It's just, I mean, in one sense, in one simple sense, you had great adventures. Yes, you? absolutely. Absolutely. You went to see places I, I couldn't find on the map. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was a great life. Like so many other missionary sisters, Philomena returned home to Ireland. Many came home because of ill health or their mission was closing down or for some reason why they had to come. There are only five Irish left in India now, four or five of our sisters. Now, when I went, there was over 100. They've either died or come home. But there are lots of Indian sisters. So that's, I mean, that's what it should be. And though I miss India, I miss the kids, they're no longer kids, I'm in touch with them on WhatsApp every day. A lot of things I miss, but I chose to come and I'm okay. How did you find Ireland when you returned? Because that's some decades in 55 years. Um, It's not the Ireland I grew up in because I grew up in a a country that our religion was central to our lives and that's not the way it is now. And there's such a bad feeling against the church and sort of I'd be more careful about talking about religion here than I would have been in India. So I feel that I'm more careful. I mean, the church has really let us down here. But then the church is is a man-made instrument. God has not let us down. Christ has not let us down. The people who were working for him have. And they were human and they have failed. But I still go to my Christ. And I feel that, and I know it even from my own upbringing, our religion was ritualistic. It was we were taught what was right and what was wrong and what we could do and what we couldn't do. But to, a relationship with Christ was something that has to grow and develop and maybe maybe that wasn't done well. It was rule-based. Do you not think so? I do, I do, I do. I think there's, it was... I have to explain it for myself, actually. It's almost like the, the value that I value, which is humanity and love and respect and care for somebody. That basic. They were not important. It wasn't about that. No. It was about rules. Don't do this and do that. And and what are the commandments? They're all ways to love God and love neighbour. And it's what we taught our Hindus and Muslims in our moral science class. We didn't say there were the Ten Commandments, but there were the ethics 
that we taught them to live a good life. I'm Margaret Gaffney. I'm a missionary sister of the Holy Rosary. Margaret joined the order at the age of 18. She studied and worked as a nurse and midwife. And then in the 1970s, she moved to Brazil. Her first appointment was in a small hospital north of Sao Paulo. Qualified nurse up to the... (laughs) Very qualified. I'd say I learned more in that hospital in a a short time. Just about the whole reality. And uh, the first, one of the first patients I remember, this woman came in and she said she was pregnant. And I looked at her and I thought, you know, she seems so old. I went to call the doctor in here and I said, she says she's pregnant and... uh, but I'm not sure of her age. And uh, he looked at me and said nothing, you know. So anyhow, she was pregnant and she was 27 and she had very low blood count. And uh, I said to him, the doctor, this is, is terrible, you know. And all these women come in and there are no husbands, nobody to help them. And the whole question of prostitution and and that. uh, So anyhow, he said to me, you know, you must forget, he said, the big hospitals and realised, you know, that this is the situation here in 1970. So these women would have nothing. The most, the majority of the people who come, it just seems so unfair yeah, I'm very unfair. I love those people, I love those women, and those abandoned women. Do they have any support? What do they, how do they write? At that stage they didn't, but now there's wonderful work done in that area. The area. So it's something I've seen grown. So how, you, you were there for 46 years, I'm Yeah. Right. You see, I moved from different uh, things. Uh, it, it's a vast country. Well, I always say I went out there and I was forgotten about. Well, I didn't complain, so I stayed all the time I could out there. And at this stage, I did my best to be with the women. And I ended up mostly in prison work. The conditions in prisons in 1970 in Brazil were harsh and often very overcrowded. could be three times the original uh, and uh, mostly uh, women, poor, black... Not always black, but poor, certainly. And what were you doing when you were visiting? Well, uh, we don't go in with a blueprint, you know, that's the one thing. The prisoners on the whole know we're for them, that we'll try to get justice for them if possible. But we pray with them and we uh, say if they want something, we try to see what we can do about it. The other basic needs uh, uh, that they have are for toilet facilities, for if they're menstruating or whatever, they have all these needs. So while we would sometimes furnish a package with stuff in it, the idea is not is to force the, the state to do what they're supposed to do for these people. That's it. And for me, it, it really, they'd say, oh, you did wonderful work in the prisons. In, in a way, 
Yes, we did. We did wonderful work, but I never did anything alone. I asked Margaret, after all of that, what it was like to come home to Ireland. It's hard to know. I say, shall I say I'm grateful that I came back when I'm whole. I've good health and I have a lot to be grateful for. And I have a wonderful family, but I don't know them. I'm only learning now to get to know my family. And I'm grateful for the opportunity of returning something to my own country that supported me, to my own family who always supported me. And now I'm, I'm 77, going 78. If I'm blessed with five, ten, more or less years, for me, it's uh, the present moment is all I have to grow deeper into awareness. And I think all the time of these women, I think so much of the beautiful women I've seen who were part of it, of often trafficked, but we didn't talk about trafficking, but after a while we begin to realise, because they're so frightened. They're in prison now for drugs. So why in my own town, in Cavan? And then these things go on in different places. You know, trafficking. And is there anything I can do about it? And definitely I believe in the energy of prayer. I do. And, uh, like, I want eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that will help me. Give the little I have to give. But give it with um, joy. That's just all. Thank you. Such a life lived. That's amazing. Done. A little girl from Cavan ends up in the prisons in San Paolo. Yeah. Hello. My name is Bernadette Joyce. I'm a presentation sister. I entered the presentation sisters in 1956, the 8th of December 1956. And I'm still here. I'm 79. And you entered at? 18. God, only a little girl. Yeah, but I didn't know anything else. <laughs> I'll tell you, when I was going to school, one of the sisters there asked me if I'd deliver missionary magazines to the neighbours. And in those magazines, I read all about those people going on the missions. I thought it was extraordinary and wonderful. I was kind of inspired to do this myself, I, I said, well, then I'd have to be a nun. I wasn't so hot on that. But I thought to myself, oh, I better grin and bear it and do it. They sent me to New Zealand, first of all, and I was there nearly 18 years. I, that was an interesting experience, going, because we went by boat. And leaving the convent in Tume. County Galway. We were flanked by the boarders and they all singing, go ye afar, go teach all nations. Now, we couldn't have gone any further. We were going 14,000 miles away and we were kind of blubbery and crying and that kind of thing. But at the same time, very idealistic and thinking, well, this is for God and we're doing it, grin and bear it like. And um, 
we were fully habited from the top to the bottom in black. And we thought we were beautiful. But... And we really went to New Zealand, not knowing would we ever get home. And we didn't even get home to our own homes before we went to New Zealand. My mother died suddenly when I was a novice. That was terribly hard. Didn't get home for that either. Anyway, I loved the New Zealanders. They were very nice. I was shy and demure at that time, and they brought me out of myself. Bernadette worked for years as a teacher in New Zealand, and from there she went to Chile. We were shocked, really, at the poverty of it after coming from a sophisticated New Zealand where everything was kind of right. But here was different. We arrived into Chile where there was tension, high tension, with Pinochet being in charge and the military and people disappearing and torture. Pinochet uh, had an allegiance with the Catholic Church. He used to go to Mass every Sunday, I think. But if he did, he was reigning over the torture chambers that went on in Chile. Uh, Being a communist was the last thing he could be. And we were supposed to be communists too because we were on the side of the poor. And we didn't mind that a bit because uh, being a communist was okay then. (laughs) I went from Santiago, which was a great experience, to Iquique. And that was... uh, I joined a group of homeless people. We looked for a piece of land to squat down on and to build little shacks. Uh, The panels I was using on my house when I built a little shack above in Ikiki were the ones that came in on the ship from Japan with the Suzuki written on them, (laughs) being parceled round cars, those rich cars, and I got the boards. (laughs) No, it was just the bare essentials, enough room for my bed. I loved it, and the toilet was an old paint can for the beginning, but... As time went on, it developed a bit more. Such extreme poverty. It, it was extreme. It was. And yet, you say, they were able to laugh and enjoy and dance and sing and music. I loved their music. The parish priest called me after Mass one day and he said, I heard you were dancing, but I said, I'm sure you weren't. I didn't say a word. And what were you doing there when you were there? What we're doing is always bothers me. I get kind of, <laughs> what would you say, a little bit nervous when people ask me, but what are you doing and what were you doing? Well, anyway, I was going around showing my teeth, as I say, visiting people, and that's how I got to know the people, some of the girls that disappeared. The disappeared girls Bernadette is talking about are the victims of Julia Silva, the most prolific serial killer of minors in Chilean history. The biggest serial killer in Chile lived not far from me. He raped and murdered 14 young girls. They had no phones, no light, no water. They were poor. They had no voice, no voice. It was, as I called it, a paradise for a a serial killer because he wouldn't be traced. Bernadette wrote a book, Eva's Journey, which tells the story. Mind you, writing the book was a a different kettle of fish. I couldn't believe that I did it. 
What made you do it? I'll tell you what made me do it. They wouldn't believe the parents of those girls. They said they were the girls were gone off to be druggies and they were gone off to be prostitutes. They said all these awful things about them and then their bodies were found. And I said, I have to tell the world about this, the injustices, by the authorities against those poor people. You said there a little while ago that they they didn't have a voice. Did you feel sometimes that you were their voice? Well, yes, but you didn't like to put yourself as the, the voice of the people. You wanted them to say their bit. And if you accompanied them to the welfare, there wasn't welfare as such, but if you accompanied them, you know, and the very fact that you were standing with them, you were approving and had confidence in them and you were a friend. I am so grateful for those years. Now, it was difficult at times. We had an earthquake, we had floods, we had different things to upset us. You know, it's so different. They changed me from the person I was. They made me, I suppose you could say they made me a better person. And I suppose I wouldn't have come home when I did, only I was ill. And that was my reasoning. And then you come home to a rich country and you say, oh my God, what are we doing here? You know, you're full of conflict. And... uh, I remember it was the time the Murphy report came out and I remember thinking, my God, this is Ireland. I think the worst thing I can be in Ireland is a sister or a priest with what went on, the scandals that uncovered. It was shocking. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. It is very good that the truth has come out. I'm so glad, because it couldn't go on. Uh, Sister Patricia Hogan, a good shepherd sister. Well, I entered in 1960. I was 17 and a half when I entered. Just a kid? Not really. I knew what I was doing. Patricia's first overseas mission was in Lebanon, where she worked in residential care. Yeah. So then you, you stayed in Lebanon for how long? For three years, basically, and then I went to Egypt. Now, I hesitate a lot in English, I know, because we spoke Arabic and French for a long time. We just get mixed up. And how long were you in Egypt? Uh, 30 years about. It was very rewarding, really, working. You know, I worked in schools, I worked in administration, I worked in parishes, I worked, did a bit of everything. And what was Egypt like? Egypt was a lovely country. It changed an awful lot, of course, during the years that I was there. In seventy. Three, we had the war, of course, with Israel that broke out. Were you frightened during those times? No, I wouldn't say I was frightened. No, no, no. There's a saying I heard, they say, the nuns are the last to leave. I think that's important. I mean, later I went to Sudan and I suggested we open a house in Darfur and I felt to be there was what was important, you know, to be there for the people. So I would understand that was the saying, you know. Tell me about living. Working and living in Sudan? Uh, in Sudan was a very poor country, really. We were living in Khartoum and on the outskirts, let's say, on the suburbs of Khartoum. And there we were working with uh, internally displaced people that had come from the south because of the war. 
a lot of them were still living in just... Now, if I say a camp, it would be a very big word. A lot of them were just houses built with sack and bamboo. But they were fantastic, you know, how they were trying, the women especially, how they were trying to do any work. We trained them to do sewing and knitting and different skills where they could earn some money. And they would build up their family to send their children to school. But then because we were so near the camp, we were able to have literacy classes for women. It gave the women a chance to learn to read and write, but it also gave them a chance to come and talk, talk among themselves, to share their stories. I think that was what was very important. It must have been heartbreaking for you as a woman to listen to those stories. It was very difficult, but I mean... You have to kind of distance yourself to be able to receive them and receive their stories and to be able to encourage them. No, the circumstances in Sudan are very, very difficult for the people, very difficult. Before, and then I went to El Obeid, where we had started what we called a club for children from conflict areas. We had... What, about 140 children at the time, and I think there are about 400 now. Now, I was I was in charge of it, organising it, and then I had a class of 110 with children from the age of 5 to the age of 22. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they were children who could not get into schools because they had been out of school, an awful lot of them. Some had gone to school, left because they were displaced. Some were just too poor to get into any school. Uh, And we kept them until they were ready to go to a fifth primary in an ordinary school. So we prepared them for that. That was, you know, very important, very important. And we gave them a meal, yes, which could have been their only meal, really, for a lot of people. And some of them would even put something aside to take home to their younger brothers and sisters. Now, we only had them from 8 o'clock in the morning until 1 o'clock because they had to go and work a bit in the afternoon to try and earn something for their families. I remember one boy was absent for a few days and I said, look, where were you? He said, look, my trousers was torn. He said, I had to go and work in order to be able to get a new trousers. I said, what work did you do? He said, sorting out the rubbish heaps. This was... I mean, it would, yes, it would break your heart, really, to hear them. But, you know, for me, it was good to be there for those children and they could talk, they could say, their, tell their stories, you know. While in Sudan, Patricia also worked in prisons. It was, the circumstances were very basic. I mean, the, and also in the prisons, you had uh, people who should have been in um, hospitals for um, Mental patients, let's say, I'm getting, not getting the right terms for nowadays, but they could just uh, deteriorate until they died and that was it, you know. We also had one or two women that had been condemned to death that were living in cages, literally, because they were in isolation. Now, this was very, very, very difficult to live. I mean, when I would visit the prison... And to go back home, I would be really tired, 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 you know. And even you wouldn't have done much except played with the children or taught the women how to work. To the, their so, children were there too? Uh, some of the children were there because they had nowhere else to go. Some of them were born in, in prison. But actually, our sisters, when they went there in the late 
70s and the beginning of the 80s, they helped those children to get into school. And we used to go to the prison every day. We would teach them a little bit of English. I had taken bricks with them to work general things. Taught them just to to be out of prison, to know what it is to be out of prison. And then we knitted cardigans for them so that when they go to school they would have little cardigans to, to wear. I mean, they're very basic things, but uh, it meant a lot to those children, you know. Did you ever stop and wonder how an Irish nun ends up knitting cardigans for a child? We never think about it, no. It it becomes part of life. Mm. Mm. No, it becomes part of life. I mean, what else could we do? We're human beings. And I think we realise also you don't have to do very big things to make a big difference, you know. I get the sense from people that have had the privilege to hear their stories that there was a great sense of autonomy when they were over there. Because you were trusted, I suppose. I mean, we hear a lot about the church not trusting women and that, but there really we had our place in the church. And uh, very often the priests would say, you can go places that we can't go. You can go into families when the mother is there and the father is not there and we can't go in, you know, and that. We were, no, we, had, we were given a lot of trust. And did you, is it from Sudan you went home? Was that your Yes, family? yeah. Well, I decided actually it was time to come home. I had had some health problems. We have... No possibility of, you know, being infirm in Sudan. You know, you couldn't stay on forever. So I thought that maybe this was time to leave. I would have liked to have uh, stayed much longer, at least until I was 80. <laughs> but what, what age were you when, when you left? Uh, 73. Mm. And where are you based now? I'm based in Limerick now. I'm working a bit with Doris Limney. They're working with asylum seekers and refugees. And what do you see for your future in terms of keeping working in that area? I hope to do so because I think now we'll have more and more people from Arabic-speaking backgrounds coming in. I think that, for me, is important. I mean, that's where I can help and I can be a help. And in October, we were able to receive a Syrian family in part of our own buildings and I'm trying to prepare the little lad, who's now 11, for school. And trying, we're trying to get him into school. This is a big, big problem. All the schools say they have too many pupils. They have no place. So we're fighting and fighting. I was hoping to be able to work a bit in the prison also, just to show people they are people. No matter what their background, what has happened, they have a future they are. I think that's very important. You, you really don't know the word retirement, do you? As long as God gives me health, I would like to continue. Well, I'm Sister Eilish Coe, and I am a member of the Religious Sisters of Charity. When I went on the foreign missions in 1974, it was to Chikuni in the southern province of Zambia. And what was life like there at that stage? It was tough. Somebody once said, you know, more happens in a day here than happens in a fortnight at home. There's always something. And then the dreaded and the horrible AIDS came in. In the 90s especially, teachers were dying. And then the students. It's an awful thing to see a student dying of AIDS. Like, that was heartbreaking. Uh, Girls, I saw a girl writing her senior school certificate. And I remember saying, she'll be dead before the results came out. And she was. And she passed brilliantly. 
And how she contracted the AIDS was she had relatives in Zaire and she was going over and back across the border and the soldiers on the border were demanding payment or demanding sex from her, in other words, to allow her to cross in to see her relatives. So I remember her well, Lillian. I can still see her sitting there in the hall writing herself, knowing that girl is not going to survive, you know. So that was the sad... But, what, like, what, what good did we do? What did we do? We were with them. We were... Were we offering them life in any way? Yes, because education was kind of a way out of poverty. Of course, being, you know, being Catholic and Christian, so I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, and they would reach their potential, you know. Because some of those so brilliant, really brilliant, creative, hard-working boys and girls, and such a pleasure to teach. And the laughter, you know, you'd never laugh as much as you would there, you know, they would enjoy life so much. And so, yeah, like life in Ireland is uneventful compared to the colourful African life. Lovely, really lovely. Sad, but I'm so glad to have that, have had that experience, you know. It was so interesting. And teaching religion in a, in a class with Hindus, Muslims, Catholics, non-Catholic Christians, and some with traditional African religion. And the books were written to cater for that, so we covered all of that. That was a great education. It certainly um, challenges the notion that we have that missions went out to convert. Oh, indeed. I suppose in the early days, and there used to be records of so many baptisms and all that that sort of thing. But it wasn't like that. Like you had no desire to convert these Muslims and Hindus and traditional African people. We lived and worked together, and just to appreciate each one, the richness of it. That was a great opportunity. But when I did come home, finally, you know, I was lost in a lot of ways. When Eilish came back first, she went back to study and she did an MA in classical spirituality. And then she got involved in organising community retreats. So I've been involved in that. I've been involved in anti-human trafficking. I worked with Ruhama out on the um, outreach van at night to the Irish women working on the streets. Now, working on the streets of Dublin and meeting those women who are forced to go out on the street to feed a drug habit their own or a partner's. And that some of them would be in fear, you know, of a partner. Like, there's no life for women. No life at all. They told me that, that these, we're good with these women. And I said, I'm not, and, you know, trying to do the best I can. He said, no, you, you, you're able to talk to the women. Should I be talking? I mean, there's no difficulty to me to talk. I would say something like, oh, your jacket is very nice. Is it warm? You know, and I'd say, oh, I got this one in Guinness, you know. And, you know, just chatting with ordinary woman to woman. And the thing is, maybe that would be the only normal conversation that woman would have that night. It's sad to see women so, you know, so degraded. Eilish also worked with women who had been trafficked. Um, for a number of years, uh, teaching English and literacy to women who had been rescued, we say, from a trafficking situation. Tell you the story that they were beaten, that they were forced, and some of them say, oh, I, you know, I pleaded with the, the men, and they said, shut up, I want what I paid for. So it is a whole um, ugly truth that there is trafficking, there are victims of trafficking in Ireland. Every night this is going on. It's very... Um, 
harrowing, you know, to hear it. I think of that when I'm reading, you know, free from fear and saved from the hands of our foes. We might serve him in holiness and justice all the days of our life. That's in the, the Benedictus in the morning. Free from fear and saved from the hands of our foes. Like we can go home tonight, go to bed in peace, shut your door, sleep. And it, like that's the beginning of a nightmare for many of our sisters, that the night is a nightmare. We wouldn't you do anything you could. So we do what we can. Do you mind me asking what age you are? I am almost 76. I'm Denise Boyle. I was born and reared in Dublin, but spent time in England. And then I'm a member of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Divine Motherhood. So I've had the wonderful opportunity of um, going overseas. I was in Australia for 15 years and then Zimbabwe for 10. And that's where I moved full-time into human rights, education and then advocacy. And because these, this was in Mugabe's early days, he had unleashed um, the 5th Brigade, you know, the Gukurundi, where it was like a genocide. We're talking about the massacre of 20,000-plus Ndebele's. And that was in the early 80s. So we were dealing with many of the victims of that came and gave testimonies in our office. That was where I learned the value of networking, working with the Legal Resource Foundation. And together we got all this evidence, you know, to let the world know what was happening in Matabeleland because it was a genocide. Well, now I came in the tail end in ninety. So that was, if you like, the context in which I joined the organisation. I started to see more and more women and children and realised that they needed special help in terms of trying to claim their rights because of the way they were in a patriarchal society and where they were bottom of the rung. And I was asked to set up them the women's desk um, for... I was working with the Zimbabwe Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace you know, standing on the shoulders of giants who'd gone before us all through the liberation struggle. But I worked a lot then in terms of violence and sexual abuse. So with another great network, we set up the victim-friendly courts because they work on the Roman-Dutch law there, not the British system. So the child would be in court facing across the room the alleged um, perpetrator and terrified the incidence of conviction was 6%. When we set up the victim-friendly court, we had the child in a separate room and threw a link-up via video, and the conviction rate jumped to 70%. It was brilliant. And that was possibly one of um, the, the most wonderful projects to be involved in. Your extraordinary lives, extraordinary work that you've done. It's amazing. Do you find that in each of the missionaries? You know, priests and sisters who come back... And one of the most challenging things, actually, when you come back, Patricia, is that people don't know my work in Zimbabwe or Australia. You still come as a blank page. Returning home and no one knows the lives that they have lived. And now they have to adjust to life in Ireland. There is a support network, the Association of Missionaries and Religious of Ireland, 
runs courses and offers advice and guidance. It's there, and if we tap into it, then it was, for me, it was a really positive experience and I made friends out of it and met others because the transition takes time back into your own culture and the sense of belonging because you can be adrift for a while. I don't think Denise stayed adrift for long. She continued to plough all of her energy into human rights. So there's a group here that I was involved in setting up, and that's the Mercy End Child Prostitution and Trafficking in the Hospitality Sector. And they're targeting and working with, in a wonderful way, it's collaborative, with the hotel sector here in Ireland to protect children. So hotels then, sometimes people can use hotels thinking they're anonymous. So the training of the staff team so that they recognise and identify can go a long way to actually saving and preventing a child being calmed. How much of an issue is that here? Massive, tragically. But every country is a source, a transit or a destination country. But after the illegal sale of arms is the illegal sale of human beings. Beating drugs, which gives you an idea, it's in the region of $150 billion a year is the amount that is probably earned from the trafficking of human beings. Now, that's globally. It's worth that much. So, on a very crass level, it is more lucrative to traffic people than it is to traffic drugs. Absolutely. And the reason why it's beating drugs now... You sell your drugs to someone and they consume them or inject them, finished. But with a human being, you can sell that person on or that child on. So it is horrific as we raise awareness about it. Hopefully that will increase prevention. Currently I'm working here with um, the Mercy International team. My job, um, or ministry I prefer to call it, is um, coordinating the global justice team, or global action as we call it. So in the 40-plus countries where the Mercy family are working, they respond to the most urgent justice issues there on the ground. The two justice issues that emerged as number one and two were the whole issue of degradation of earth, and the other was um, displacement of peoples to incorporate refugees, migrants, asylum seekers. And obviously, as part of that, there's people smuggling and the whole trafficking issue. So if you like, um, this office, I see it as a bridge between the grassroots and the countries to the UN. And that is how Denise, a missionary sister in her 70s, continues to fight for human rights. And these are the six women who challenged me completely about my notion of an old woman and a missionary sister. And I think, what a life you have lived. Mm -hmm. Even on a very base level, like what mm. adventures, you know, just mm. to go and travel, but then to witness and to be part of a process that helps people mm. in such extreme circumstances. Mm. I think that's remarkable. I suppose it's what it is to be a woman, is it? You know? Returning home is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Produced and narrated by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Context Studio.